So as as we mentioned earlier, we're gonna we're gonna be in the book of Ezra today. Uh, Ezra is in the Old Testament, and uh, we've been we've been talking over the last several weeks about um, this book of Ezra, and we've been talking about how it's really we've really come to the core of talking about uh, foundations in our lives and what does it mean to have a foundation. And in the book of Ezra, their whole mission and purpose was to go back. They've been exiled for 70 years, as we've been talking about. And so now they are making the journey back to Jerusalem, back to build the foundation, and ultimately to rebuild the temple. Um, And so we've been looking at that in the context of our lives, and what does it look like for us to build our lives on uh, a foundation? What are those foundations that we build our lives upon. And we've talked about how a lot of times we build them on really shaky, poor foundations, don't we? Um, a lot of times we, we build them on things that we can do, we can accomplish. And then when life and the world and stress and everything else hits that, they just crumble underneath us. Um, but, but we've been going back uh, time and time again to this theme of rebuilding our lives on the bedrock foundation of Jesus. And we've said that if we will build our lives on this foundation of Jesus, even when the hard stuff comes, even when life doesn't go as we expect it to, even when hard things come in our lives, that foundation is going to stay because it's built on something stronger than ourselves. Um, and so as, as we look at uh, chapter 4 today of, of Ezra, uh, just to kind of catch us up real quickly, uh, we've talked about how um, God's people have been exiled into Babylon for 70 years, right? And, and why were they, why were they uh, exiled? You guys remember? What was it? Anybody remember? What did they do or not do? They weren't following God. They weren't following God. They were following after other gods, right? And so, and so God had promised and fulfilled that promise that he was going to send them away into exile. And so now it's been 70 years uh, they've been in Babylon, and now through God working again through the king of Persia, a guy named Cyrus, um, God is now bringing them back to, um, to Jerusalem, and so they're coming back into the land. Last week in chapter 3, we talked about how they, they started with worship. They built the altar. Um, they established worship there, and then they started to take on the responsibility of getting to work. Right? They started getting to work, building the temple, and they... Uh, started to lay the foundation. And so this morning, as, as we get uh, into chapter 4, we're going to see that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a really long time until after, after they started building this foundation that um, opposition starts to come in. And so I want to start with a question for us to all think about. And the question is this, what does it take to make you quit? What does it take to make you just want to throw in the towel, throw up your hands, and quit? And I think we've all probably had those moments, right, where we've wanted to quit or we wanted to just kind of give up because uh, life got too hard or things got too challenging and we just wanted to throw in the towel. I remember, um, I remember when I was uh, younger, um, maybe like middle, no, it wasn't middle school. I didn't play any sports in middle school. Um, uh, elementary school back when everybody got to play, um, right? And they didn't pick you for teams. They just kind of had to put you on a team. That tells you anything about my skill level. Um, I remember playing some, some sports. We played uh, uh, baseball. We played basketball, uh, or, or I did. And I remember uh, every year basketball season, I was so excited for basketball season to start. I was like with anticipation. I was like, this is going to be the year. This is going to be awesome. We're going to be amazing. And then we had our first game, of course, and then we weren't amazing and, you know, that, that whole thing. Uh, and I was really bad at basketball. I think my whole basketball career spanning of, like, you know, what, four or, four or five years, I may have scored, like, eight points the whole time. I was, I was horrible. Um, I was the kid that the coach just had to put in because he felt bad. Um, I remember I used to do this, this goofy thing that uh, whenever my team would go down and score, I would run back with my arm in the air like, yeah, I did something. And I really didn't do anything at all. I, I may have passed the ball to somebody who scored. Um, but, but I remember um, about three-quarters of the way through the season, every year, I would want to quit because practices started getting harder and games started getting harder and maybe we weren't winning that season and I wanted to quit. And I remember my parents, and I'm so grateful now that they taught me this, but in the moment, I was just like, man, they, were just like, they wouldn't let me quit. They said, whatever you start, you got to finish, right? You don't have to play next year. You don't have to sign up. But if you started the season, you're going to finish the season. Um, and I just remember that 
as being a pivotal moment in my life um, of, of just realizing that, you know, things come at times and they get hard and we just want to quit and throw in the towel. And the question is, what does it make, what does it take to make you quit? So I want you guys, uh, what we're going to do, um, and, and for those of you who haven't been with us before, uh, we like to kind of, uh, throughout the message, we'll take a few minutes and just kind of ask some questions and discuss that together. Um, I feel like it just really helps us to get um, a much better uh, understanding out of our time together. Um, but I want you guys to take like 30 seconds real quick and discuss, has there ever been a moment in your life that you've quit something? And what has that been? All right, so just, just turn around to the people closest to you and just take a couple of minutes and, and just ask that question. <laughs> What has made you quit? Has there been things in your life that have made you quit? All right, well, I know we could probably take the rest of our time just talking about that one question. Um, but hopefully that kind of got your, your mind in this, in this place of thinking about what are those things that actually make us quit, right? Because in, in our passage this morning in Ezra chapter 4, we're going to see that opposition comes to the Israelites. Opposition comes in and it takes several different forms and we're going we're gonna to talk through what each one of those were, but ultimately it, it landed in a place where they quit, they gave up, they stopped working on this temple and this big mission that God gave them. And so they just quit. And, and I think we have to ask that question of ourselves, what does it take to make us quit? Now just a little bit of background to, just so we can kind of get an idea, because as we were, as I was preparing for this and studying for this, um, it's, you know, when, when you just kind of read through the chapter, you don't get the timelines of, of how long some of these things actually took and the and time for that. So um, there's a little chart that uh, we'll refer to a couple times today. Um, but if we look, um, so from um, chapter, chapter 4, uh, the first couple of verses there, as it talks about the opposition that comes, um, all the way down to 24, really, where they stopped the building. That's a six-year process, okay? So I want us just to get in our minds. This wasn't just like they said something bad about them for like a week. This was a six-year process that, that opposition continued to just wear and tear down at these people to the point that they quit, right? And then I also want to point out right here that um, at, from, from 24 to the beginning of chapter 5, which we don't really get when we're just reading, there's a 10-year period where they just stop altogether. They just stop what they're doing. They stop doing what God has called them to do. Um, and so then after 10 years of just stopping, um, we, we find out in chapter 5 that then they start to resume the building. Uh, and so those are, the, those are the dates up there for when all that happened. Um, and so it's, it's just important that we understand that this wasn't just something that happened overnight. And I think that's, that's even true in our lives, right? Opposition most of the time isn't just for a week or for a short season, it's for a long period of time when we go through and we experience different opposition that's happening in our lives. And so we're going to start, and we're just going to kind of walk through chapter 4 um, and look at some of the opposition that they faced. <coughs> so we're gonna, uh, I'm going to start with verse 1, and we're going to just kind of take our, take our time going through these, looking at this uh, different opposition. So uh, Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the, exile, that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day that, really long name, um, Asarahad, king of Assyria, had brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the houses, heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building the house of God. Uh, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, had commanded us. So the first opposition we're going to see right off the bat um, as soon as they start, as soon as they get started with the building process, is deception, right? Is deception. All right. This is really challenging. Um, please don't check my spelling. I got my two teachers on the front, though, so they can give me a thumbs up that I'm good. Um, right? We see the first thing that happens is they come in and they, 
and they start to use deceptive language to try to trick them, right? It says that the adversaries, right? These are, these are people who have identified as, for whatever reason, whatever purpose, they are coming against the Israelites. They want to thwart, they want to stop their building of the temple. And so they got a problem with them. And so their opposition, the first thing that they're going to do is that they are going to try to deceive them. And look what it says. It says in verse 2, as they speak to them, they said, Let us build with you, for we worship the same God as you do. Right? We worship the same God. We've been making sacrifices to this same God. And thus starts the deception, right? They, They try to come in and they try to identify as, Hey, you know what? We're the same. We're the same as you are, right? At the core, like, we, we believe the same things. We do the same things. But yet, what we can get as we look at verse 3 and we see as, as their response is that Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they understood that these guys are not the same. They said, you have nothing to do with this. This is not of you. And this idea of deception, this is not the first place we see this in, uh, in the Word, in the Word of God. And so this morning, as we look at each one of these um, tactics that these enemies that these adversaries are going to use i want us to think of them in for our for our lives i want to think of them in two categories okay first i want you to be thinking about um the bible says that we have an enemy a great enemy his name is satan or the devil he's he's been the adversary to god and his plan ever since the very beginning so that's one category i want us to think about as we look at this deception and how the israelites were deceived um, and how they had this opposition coming against them what you think about in that realm. But then also at the same time, I think that there are also people in our lives sometimes that play that role of opposition and trying to stop us from something maybe God has called us to do uh, or, so, or a way that we know that we need to live. And so those are kind of the two frames I want us to look at for our lives um, as we look back at the story. And so deception, right? And so the enemy, the enemy Satan, we, and we know that from Genesis chapter 3, right? If you guys remember the story back in the garden, um, when Adam and Eve were there, right, and the, and the serpent comes up to Eve, and what does he say? You guys remember? Anybody remember? What does he say? Anybody remember? Surely you won't die. Surely you won't die. But he starts out by saying, did God really say, right, those deceptive words, did God really say that you would die if you ate from this fruit, right? He, he didn't just come out and flat out say, God's wrong and denied what God said because he knew that they probably... They may not have bought into that, but he came in with very deceptive language. We see in, in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, right? When he's out being tempted, and, and he starts out the, the temptations by saying, if you're really the son of God, then you can do this, right? And he, and he, and he starts out with this very, very deceptive, very sneaky language that he uses, um, and, and it's important that we realize that, that just like as, as the Israelites had to identify the deception that was happening here, we have, to, we have to be wise to that in our lives, right? We have to think about that because our enemy, uh, whether, that's, whether that's the devil or whether that's uh, a person who's, who's just trying to get us away from God uh, for, for whatever reasons those are, a lot of times deceptive people and our deceptive enemies, they're very good at confusing us and kind of being very subtle in their approach, right? It's typically not the upfront, in-your-face kind of approach, right? This is kind of very alluring that wants to just kind of draw us in to the point of deceiving us. And in fact, um, the, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with a group of the Pharisees, um, and he keys us <laughs> into this truth that we need to understand about our enemy uh, and how he works. And it says this, um, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you, um, you are of your father the devil, right? And your will is to do your father's desires. Here's what he's going to tell him. He said he was a murderer from the beginning, right? From the beginning, he had a plan to um, rebel against God and then bring down humanity to turn against God. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and father of lies and that's what we have to to identify is that when we get into those moments and the enemy is whispering those lies into our ears we have to realize that he's the father of lies right we got to be wise to that sort of thing we have to acknowledge that so when so when deception comes in our lives we have to be aware of that 
We have to be wise. We have to be paying attention. We almost have to expect that to be what is said to us. And so what does that look like in our lives, right? Um, and, I, and I know in my life, right, I know the times that I feel like the enemy has tried to deceive me the most have been moments of pride, right? It's been that deception in my ear that, man, you're, you're good, right? You don't need God. You're good. Like, you, 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 got, you do things the way you want to do it, um, and you have it. You're good enough. You have this. You have what you need. But then on the other hand, for some people I know that I care about very deeply, the, the deception has been, you know what? You're not good enough. God will never accept you for what you've done. And he just continues to whisper those deceptions. And outside of that, I think our world, our culture today, even whispers deception, right? Have you guys heard of universalism? You guys familiar with that phrase at all? Like, nod your heads if you've heard that. A little confused. So universalism basically says that all paths, all religions, always point to the same God, right? And so for maybe for you, then that, that means that you're going to go and see your Buddhist uh, so you're going to go through Buddhism, uh, and maybe over here you're going to go through Islam, and over here you're going to go through this path and that path. But ultimately, we're going to end at the same place, right? Because ultimately, universally, we're going to be in the same place. Universalism, it's all pointing to the same place. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a lie, that's a deception that our culture has bought into hook, line, and sinker, right? And we hear it in the conversations of, well, you, whatever's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, but we can still just kind of get along, right? We can coexist in all, in all of this. And it's a deception. It's a lie. Because we know in the word of God that it tells us that there is only one way, right? That Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I love, I love here um, the response that they give in verse 3, right? They says, you have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God. And I think, I think man, we would be so well off if that was our response right so in those moments maybe you're sitting alone a lot of times i think the enemy likes to come at us when we're alone when we're disconnected from community and other people who care about us when we're sitting alone right we're sitting at home alone and he just starts to whisper those things man i think we would be so wise to just almost repeat these words you have nothing to do with us right you have nothing to do with the plans that god has in my life deception right but when that deception didn't work, when they continued to build, look at verse 4. They move into the next phase of this opposition. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Right? They discouraged. Discouragement. Discouragement. That's the, that's the second tactic they use. So when deception didn't work, they said, you know what? We'll discourage them. We'll continue to, to, to just wear away at them uh, so much to the point that they made them afraid to build. Right? Discouragement. I think we've all experienced discouragement in our life. Right? Just like the Israelites, they, they, they felt this, this weight. Right? Because uh, the people, the Bible right here doesn't tell us how many adversaries. It just says that there were people. Right? And these were people who were already in the land. And so I would, I'm assuming that there's a good number of people. And they started to discourage them in their efforts toward God. Right? They, di- they didn't, they didn't um, and again, um, still in that same line, this wasn't a, a full attack on them, but it was a discouragement. Right? It was to discourage them. It was to tear down the courage that they had. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians he gives, he gives us the encouragement. When we go through discouraging moments, what does he tell us to do? Do you have that one up there? Chad? I didn't. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 says this. So we are always of good courage, right? We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That we should always be filled with courage that comes from God. And so in those <laughs> moments... That, that we feel discouragement in our lives, in those moments that we feel like we're incapable of doing what God's called us to do. Because I'm sure that was going through their minds, right? Man, God has told us to rebuild this temple. I'm talking about the temple, right? The temple was the place that God was going to meet with man. That's a huge task, right, to think about. And then if you look back at what the temple looked like under Solomon, and you look at the exquisiteness of 
the temple. You look at all of the, the jewels and the carvings and these beautiful things that were in the temple. That was a daunting task. And so the enemies just continued to wear away at them and discourage their efforts, right? Started to discourage them. A guy named John Bloom said this. He said, his strategies, talking about the enemy, are disorientingly sophisticated. But his goal is simple, to discourage Christians. Discouraged Christians are immobilized threats. They are diffused gospel bombs. They are silenced evangelists whose faith does not have any courage. Their faith anemic. Just think about that for a second, right? Our enemy, like at the core, we know that like in John chapter 10, the Bible tells us that if we belong to Jesus, we're his, we're going nowhere, that we belong to him, that Jesus holds us in his hand, and there's nothing that can snatch us away, right? So we belong to Jesus, and that doesn't change, that doesn't get taken away because the power of Jesus is big enough to hold us. And so if the enemy knows that he can't steal you away, man, sometimes discouragement can almost accomplish almost as much, Right? Because for you and for me, if we are discouraged from what God has called us to do, we're going to be, as it says here, we're going to be immobilized. We're going to be diffused gospel bombs. We're not going to have the gospel and the power and the courage that comes along with that to go out and do what God's called us to do. Because we're going to be discouraged. Discouraged. And really when we think about it, discouragement is really, a lot of times in my life, I look at discouragement, it happens when I, when I start to take the focus off of what God's called me to do and onto myself. And I start to believe what other people say about me, right? Because a discouraged Christian is not a threat to the enemy. And this can happen in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different things that can discourage us, right? And we all have different things. We all have different things that discourage us. For me, one of those big things is worry, right? So if I sit down and and I'm worried about something, I'm not thinking also at the same time about what God wants me to do. I put that on hold. I put that on pause because my life is so wrapped up in my current circumstances, my current situations. And I get very discouraged by that. Um, For other people, um, they have people in their life that are just negative discouragers, right? Can we all, like, identify that we probably know someone or have experienced someone in our life that plays that role of just being that negative discourager? And so sometimes when you have that person in your life and if you allow them in your life for long enough, then they start to discourage you. They start to, to, and you stop focusing on what God has called you to do, and you care more about what they're telling you you can't do. And that becomes a problem. And so we see that they were discouraged. As we move on to verse 5, it says that these adversaries, they also, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the day of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this wasn't just a quick little thing. This was a continual process of frustrating their efforts. So when discouragement didn't get them to stop, they moved on to frustration. Right? They moved on to frustration. Frustration started to frustrate the people. And this was a long process, right? This was a long, long time that they were in this process of being frustrated and, and worried and just started to do things intentionally to mess up their efforts. It says that they bribed counselors against them. And they did everything they could do to just make them want to throw their hands up, Right? And in John chapter 16, Jesus talks about, in verse 33, he talks about what we should expect in this world. And he says, I have said to these things to you, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Why, why is that important? Because in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? Jesus has said, if we live in the broken, messed up world that we live in, we should just expect that things are going to be challenging and we're going to expect tribulation, right? That's why, that's why for, for some of us, when we go to work, we have that coworker who just seems like their whole mission in life is just to get at us, right? We just have that person that just seems to just want to get at us and frustrate us in everything that we do. It's why for some of you guys, when you go to high school, 
right? There's that person or that group of people that seems like their agenda and their purpose is just to get at you, right? It's why as kids, you feel like your parent, no, I'm just kidding. Um, that's their role. That's their job. That's, we, we have enough of them, but, but there are those things, right? I know, I know some of our kids, they will try to do something and when they can't do it right now, it's tying shoes. And so when they can't tie the shoes, they get so frustrated, right? Then what do they do? Well, if you have boys, they throw the shoe across the floor, right? And if you have girls, then they just cry and then they make you want to cry. Um, it's amazing how God has wired us so differently. Uh, and I'll take the flying shoes any day over the crying. This, I'm going to cover this up for a minute. I've, I've often said that, that girls have, uh, they do have psychological warfare as their tactic, and they're very good at it. So we have three little boys and three little girls, and it's amazing the difference, right? But when they get frustrated, they get to the point that they just want to throw their hands up and quit. And they all handle that differently, right? And it's true for us. It's even true for us in our faith, right? We go through a dry season. We go through a season where we feel like, man, I am just, I'm trying to seek God, but something's in the way, and we just, it's just not clicking. It's not happening the way it once was. And what do we do? We don't just try harder. We don't just continue in our devotion to God. We just quit, don't we? We just throw our hands up, and we're like, maybe in another season, maybe we wait for the next thing to come along. We can't wait for that next moment that we feel God's presence, right? And we just throw our hands up in frustration. You see, our our enemy, our great enemy is going to push us to the point of wanting to throw our hands up. He's going to interact in our lives, and he's going to try to do things to frustrate us and confuse us and to push us to that point. He's going to make us want to throw our hands up. I came across a verse this week in um, Ecclesiastes as I was studying. I was studying on on anger and, and, and what anger does in our lives, and it's it's, uh, it's, I just thought, because I feel like frustration a lot of times will manifest itself as anger, right? We get frustrated, and then we just kind of turn, and we're just like super angry about everything. Um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, it says this. It says, do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. I just think that's so important to realize that sometimes if we allow that frustration to go on long enough, then it starts to breed anger, and then that just stays rooted in us. And we just become angry, bitter people, right? And, and, and sometimes the, the frustration in life is not even brought on by an enemy or adversary. Sometimes we bring that frustration into our own lives, don't we? Um, I know for, for our lives right now, Nicole and I were discussing this, I think busyness sometimes can be one of those things that is, um, is a huge frustration, right? We get frustrated because we can't accomplish everything, because we filled up our entire day, our entire schedule, everything with things that is just really unrealistic. And so we're so busy in our lives that we don't have time to do the things that God has called us to do. We don't have time to take time and rest and to be together because of all the things that we've done. And then we get frustrated. And I know for me, like when we get frustrated, it's like, oh, well, God, I'm just doing too many things for God. I'm doing too many things for God when it's really me that is putting all of that on myself. So frustration starts to come in. And so, so after frustration, we start to see that uh, the next um, tactic the enemy uses is accusation. Accusation. This is going to be in the bigger section. This is going to be in, in, from verses 6 all the way down to 16. Accusations or that he's going to, they're going to be accused of things. And so what I want to do, I'm going to, the context uh, from verses 6 down to 11 is basically that these adversaries, they write a letter to Artaxerxes, who is the, now the new king of Persia. And so he's, they're writing this letter and they're sending this out, talking about uh, the Jews and all the things that they are going to do and how he needs to respond to what he needs to do. And so they're, they're throwing out all of these accusations. And so what I want us to do, instead of me just getting up here and giving you, uh, and there are four accusations that they make, instead of me doing that, what I want you guys to do is to take a couple minutes in your groups, and I want you to look at the passage and see if you can come up with what are the four accusations that are being made. So you're going to be looking at verses 12, uh, really 13, um, down through 16. And I think we have that text up, up there as well. Uh, there you go. And I, and I made it a little bit easier for you. I underlined... Um, what I thought uh, were those accusations. So get in there and discuss that in your group and see if you guys can pick out what are these four accusations that they are really 
trying to bring about or bring against conversion? All right, so hopefully you guys had a couple minutes to discuss that. I know uh, probably not nearly enough time. Um, <clears throat> but what did y'all what did y'all come up with? Um, what, what what do you think right there? What is that first that first underlined section? They will not pay tribute, custom tolls. The royal revenue will be impaired. What do you, what do you think that accusation really was saying? They won't do what? I got a guess. All right, I'll give. Well, it's kind of saying like they're they're not going to be paying taxes and all these things because right. like in the previous chapters, talk about all the things that were donated by the people of Israel to right. the building of these things. So like they're not buying them in Persia, so they're not paying taxes on all those materials. Exactly. So, so really the first accusation here is that they won't pay, right? He's like, you know what? You're, you're going to let them build this. You're going to let them build this temple. You're going to let them rebuild the walls. You're going to let them do all this sort of stuff. And then they're not going to send money back like they're supposed to, right? That, and that was a big thing for, for Persia, if you guys remember. From week one, we talked about when they set up these, these areas, they set them up. Um, also, they would send people back to their homelands, and then they would send taxes back. It was, it was what was good for the empire of Persia. And so the first, the first accusation they made against them is like, look, if, if you let them go back and continue to build this, they're going to get to this place, and they're not going to pay you, right? What, is the, what about the second one? Um, I think that one's pretty clear, right? That they will dishonor the king, right? That they're gonna, you're going to allow them to come back, and they... They won't honor the king. They're not gonna. They're not gonna acknowledge him once they get over there. They're not gonna acknowledge him. And then in verse fifteen, right? Look at what it calls them. It says that they are a what? A rebellious city, right? And so essentially, they're saying that you know what? Not only are they not gonna pay, not only are they not gonna honor the king, but ultimately, they will rebel. Right? They're going to rebel. They're going to rebel against the king. If you continue to allow them to do this, you're going to let them get into a position where they'll start to do that, right? And then, and then uh, finally, that, that last section there, he says that uh, they'll have no possession in, or you will have no possession in the providence uh, beyond the river. Any idea what, what's kind of what they're trying to hit at there? Yeah, like the king is going to have no control, right? He's saying that if you let them do that, they they won't give control, right? So essentially their accusation as they write this letter to the king is like, look, if you let them go and do this, they're not going to pay the taxes. They're going to not, they're going to dishonor you as the king. They're going to rebel against you. And ultimately... They're going to have control again. They're going to be controlling this land that you gave them. And that was their accusations that they made. And so, and so as we kind of take that and we think about accusations, right, as a, as a tactic that our enemy uses against us, accusations, <clears throat> it's important to realize that, that our enemy, he does use those accusations in our life, right? Um, and even if you look at what they were saying about the Jews here, these were not far, some of these things were not far off from the truth, right? There was a point where they rebelled against the king, right? There was a moment when um, Nebuchadnezzar came and set up a king, and that king decided that he was going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar um, in Babylon. And so it's, it's not far off, but they twist it just a little bit, right? These accusations. And the Bible even tells us that in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it talks about our enemy, right? And it's talking about on the, on the last days um, when, when all, of, all the things have kind of spun out, right? In Revelation it says, uh, And I heard a voice, a loud voice in heaven crying out, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and all the authority uh, of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, right? We have to realize that fundamentally that our enemy is an accuser. That's one of the roles that he does. He, he accuses the brethren. If you guys are familiar with the story of Job, right, there's this moment where God 
is talking with the accuser, with the enemy. And he's making accusations about Job. And he's saying that, you know what, Job is only being obedient and following you because you've blessed him. Right? And so the enemy is continually uh, accusing all of us um, before the Father and, and even to, to ourselves. It's those voices sometimes that we hear. Right? Sometimes that happens in our lives. Sometimes that happens in our marriages. Right? We, we start to think, man, that person's not doing enough for me. Right? We start to hear that they don't really love you. They don't really care about you. And we start to, to, to believe those, those lies. However, uh, I love what, what the author of Hebrews says. Um, if you got your Bibles, I would encourage you to actually flip there. Because um, this is one of those verses that I think is worth underlining. Uh, I went to underline it in my Bible and realized that it was already underlined. So I underlined it again just to make it like extra, extra stand out. Because I just think this is such a, such a huge um, verse for us to, to really just to take root in in these moments when we're feeling like we're getting accusations thrown against us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, Consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have to realize that even in the midst of all those accusations, that we have an intercessor up there. That Jesus is interceding between us and the Father, even in the midst of accusations and things being thrown against us. That Jesus is standing there making intercession for us before the Father. And that's incredibly encouraging because if you've ever been through a season where you just felt like, man, I've just had accusation after accusation. I've just been discouraged after discouragement. To know that we have Jesus making intercession before the Father for us, that we have Jesus going on our behalf before the Father, that's so, so encouraging in those moments. That's so encouraging in those moments. So accusation is, uh, is the next tactic that they use. And finally, the last one we find in, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 17 through 24. Right? Verse 17 through 24, we find the last thing that happens. It says this, uh, the king then sent an answer, right? And he goes to it and talks about um, how he sends that answer to them. And starting in verse uh, 21, it says, Therefore, this is what the king is saying, he says, Therefore, make a decree that these men, the Jews, be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to slacken this matter. Why should damage grow out of hurt of the king? Then the copy um, of, of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before uh, Ruam and Shishmai, the scribes and they and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem was stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right. So, so now we see that not only has it kind of started out with deception, discouragement, frustration, accusation. But now they're moving to the point of they are being forced, right? They are being forced to stop building the house. They are being, they're bringing in. And so under the rule of the king, he's saying that there's this letter sent that, that's telling them that they need to stop, right? That they need to stop. Um, and he's going to do whatever he can uh, to make that happen. And I, I love, well, I don't love, I hate it when, when I read this. Um, but look at the way, um, look at the response here by their adversaries. Um, in, in like verse 23, it says that they went with haste to the Jews to tell them, and that by force and power they made them cease, right? And I feel like that's just the way sometimes, you know, when, when, when we have enemies, when we have adversaries, opposition, and they feel like they've won, it's like they just go in haste and excitement to deliver that. And I feel like that's what we see here is that there was, they, they went and they were just hastily saying, you know what, you guys can't do this anymore and we're going to literally stop you from doing that. And so they stopped the work. Stopped the work on building the temple. And so this is great. It's important that we understand the tactics, right? Um, that we understand that this is how opposition comes against us. But this isn't the end, right? And so hopefully you got these down. Because we're going to move on to our next question as we look at opposition. And that question is this. 
how do you respond to opposition? Right? How do you respond? And so we're going to look at how the Jews responded, and then we're going to take a second and look at what is it, what is it from, a, from a biblical perspective? What is it that God would have us? How would God have us respond to opposition? Because it doesn't matter where we're sitting at today. We're all going to face opposition at some point in our lives. Right? The question is, how do we respond when that comes? What is our reaction to that? And so right here, we kind of get this bridge. And if, and if you guys remember back in our, in our chart, I think we still have that up there, that there's this, there's this 10-year period between the end of 24 and the beginning of 5-1 where the building just stops. And they don't do anything. They just shut it all down for 10 years, and they stop working on the house of God. So how do we respond, right? Well, their response was just to quit, was just to quit. And we even see, so if we look at the beginning of Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, it starts out by saying, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the sons of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Right? And so, it, so we're getting this little, this little reminder that, hey, there were some other people on the scene, and God had sent some prophets to the Jews. In the midst of all of this opposition, in the midst of them just throwing up their hands and quitting, God sent some prophets to them, right? God sent some prophets to them. And if we flip over and we look at what the prophets said, it really clues us in uh, on, onto what was happening in this 10-year period of time. And so one of those that it mentions is Haggai. Haggai. And uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, through verse 6, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Notice what he says, These people say, not that I said, but these people said that. Then the word of the Lord, by the hand of Haggai the prophet, said this, It is time for you yourselves to dwell, uh, for it is a time for you that you, have, you yourselves have dwelled in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have shown much, uh, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, you have forgotten about what God has called you to do, and you've just really gotten focused on the things that you wanted to do, right? He says that, he says that they started to build paneled houses, right? And you might, before you think about this, I know there's a guy uh, in here, Joe, who builds houses, and one of the houses they build are these panel houses where they bring up, they build them in a factory, and then they assemble them kind of on site. That's not what they're talking about here. These, these, this paneled house was this very elaborate and lustrous looking house that had these beautiful wood panels that was put up all around them. And that's a picture just to tell us that they have really gotten inward focused. They've really started looking at their lives and what was important to them, and they've forgotten all about what God had called them to do. And so God says, consider your ways. This is a time to think and to respond to what God wants you to do. And I think that is just... The, that is our reaction sometimes, right? When opposition gets us to, the, to a standstill in our life, right? Don't we just focus inwardly a lot of times? Um, and I think we all do that. Um, so right now, I, I need a few volunteers. I know this is kind of um, off the cuff, um, but I need, I need a few volunteers. So if I could get maybe like five or six people that would come up here for a demonstration, please, that would be really, really helpful. Come on, come on. Yeah, quick, quick, quick. Come on, a few more people. Come on. I promise I'm not going to make you eat anything weird. It's going to be really simple. Hopefully you guys can do this. All right, come on, Kent. All right, very cool. Yeah. So what I want you guys to do, okay, is I want you guys to form, hold hands and form a circle around the podium right here, okay? I want you to hold hands. Okay, very, very, I'm not going to put them on the podium. Yes, uh, very cool. So let me ask you guys a question, all right? When I said form a circle, why did you guys all face inward? No one grabbed hands this way, because you can still grab, but you can still make a circle, <laughs> yeah. right? 
And I think what this shows, thank you guys, y'all can sit down. I think what this shows is, <laughs> I know, I told you it wasn't hard. Um, but I think what's, what this shows us is that inwardly, um, that for all of us, we tend to turn inward, right? We, we tend to turn inward in our lives. Um, and, and I think that was just a, a cool little analogy just to see that, is that whenever we go through things, our natural response is to turn inward, right? We want to turn inward and look at ourselves and say, what is it that I need, right? What are those things? And you know what? There was nothing wrong with them building these houses. God had actually told them in a chapter earlier to build towns and cities and to live in them. But that became the focus of everything they did. So it wasn't just that they stopped building, right, when the opposition came, but then they just turned completely focused inward in their own lives. And you know what? I think that happens to a lot of us. I think that happens in individually in our lives. Maybe when we don't feel like we're hearing from God, we start to just seek after those things that, that we feel like are important to us, right? We start to just lean in on other areas of our life. Maybe it's our work or our marriages or our families or going on and doing these elaborate vacations or, or whatever it may be. And these things are not bad things in and of themselves. But when, when we forsake God and we leave God out of the picture of that, right? Or as, or as it says in Matthew 6, when we're not seeking first the kingdom and then all the things are added, right? But when we start to seek all these other things, it becomes a problem. We become inward focused, right? We do this in our marriages, right? When we're not feeling like we're getting what we want out of that or we feel like there's a need that we're having in our marriage that's not being met, right? A lot of times we'll turn inward and we just find other ways to meet that needs or we just get really cold toward that person that God has called us to be in relationship with. This happens in our mission, right? If God has called us to go and to do something for him and it's not going our way, we just quit. We just throw up our hands and we just quit and we just focus on the things that we want to do. And it even happens in a church, right? We get to a point, I think, in a church a lot of times that we start getting people and we get enough people and we just get comfortable and we just start to turn inward, right? That just naturally happens. We, when, when, when we feel like um, the mission or things are not working out the way we want them to, we just always tend to turn inward. So what I want you guys to do, uh, we're going to take one more little short break um, and then we're going to finish up with how we should respond. But I want, I want you guys to answer this question in your groups. In those times when you feel like throwing your hands up and quitting, Right? When, when, when something stops you, when you can't accomplish whatever that goal was that God has had for you in your life, what is your response to that? What is your natural response? Is it just to focus inwardly? Is it to throw your hands up and to quit? Is it to try to find something else to fill in its place? So I want you guys to take about 30 seconds and discuss that. What, what is your response? When, all right, guys, I know I didn't give you a whole lot of time for that one, um, but hopefully you had a little bit of discussion. Um, and so, um, actually, I didn't tell you guys this either, but um, we're actually combining two weeks of messages into one message this week. Um, we had that snow week, and we kind of got off um, our calendar with, with our church in Roanoke and Bedford that we're kind of teaching through, and so we're actually combining two weeks into one this week, so um, that's a whole lot. I know this kind of hits you. Hopefully you've wrote some of these things down, um, but I, but I want to get to the point of, okay, we know how a lot of times we naturally respond, but how should we respond, right? What should we acknowledge? How should we realize? What should we know um, and how should that affect us when opposition comes? Um, and we're going to see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Um, and so just real quickly, I'm going to give you those. Um, and the first, the first thing we should acknowledge is that God is, speaking to, God is speaking to you. God is speaking. God is, God is speaking. God is speaking to you. Right? Look at verse, look at verse 1. It says, Now... The prophets, right? And what was the role of the prophets in the Old Testament? They would speak to people for God, right? God would give them a message, and he would speak to them. And then they would take that message, then it says, so it says, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, right? And what did they do? They prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and in Jerusalem, right? And so the, the, the role of the prophet also reminded them that God hasn't forgot about you. He's still sending you prophets, even in the midst of this 10 years of you not building and you feeling like you've just been defeated, God is still sending a word to you. God is still sending his truth to you. And they had forgotten about it. They had become apathetic, right? Look at, look at how both Haggai and Zechariah both start out, right? It says the word of the Lord came to both of these prophets, right? 
And so God is continuing to speak to us even when we don't feel like that he's speaking to us at times. And so that asks the question, how does God speak to us today, right? Because we don't have prophets today, right? That was for the Old Testament, right? We've, we've had a great prophet, a high priest and a prophet come as Jesus, but we don't have prophets anymore, right? We don't have to wait for, for God's word to come to us from somebody else. How do we get God's word, what God has to say to us today? Through his word, right? Yeah, through his word. And so, and so when we're in those moments of opposition, these are opportunities for us to go to the word, right? To go to his word. God speaks to us still through his word. Have you ever been in that moment like that you've read a scripture and you've read it probably 10 times before in your life, but because of what you're going through, it takes on a new meaning in that moment or it somehow just clicks in a new way? That's the beautiful thing about God's word. Right, uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago in Second Timothy three sixteen. It says that that all Scripture is God breathed, right? And it's active and it's alive and it's all that we need. And so when when we're when we're looking to hear from God, we can get it from His Word. We can get it through His Son, through Jesus. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about how that now in in the earlier days God spoke through the prophets, but in the later days He spoke through His Son, His Son. And so we can get it through through God's Son. Jesus and the gospel and the message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came and did, that he laid down his life as a ransom for our lives. We can also see it through creation, through creations. And in Romans 1.20, Paul talks about how we, as we can acknowledge and look at creation, what God has created, it speaks to us about our creator. It speaks to us about the God who put it all into motion, into play. And then finally, and I think this is, this is very important, I think this is one that we, we skip out on a lot of times, but it also happens through God's people, right? Through the people. And so we're going through a hard time in our life. We're going through some opposition in our life. Number one, we need to go straight to the Word of God to hear what it has to say and realize that the gospel um, plays a truth and a role in our life. And, and, and we can see that through creation, but sometimes... God uses people in our lives, other brothers and sisters who have found the truth of God's word, who have found the gospel truth in their life to speak truth into our lives, to speak encouragement to our lives. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I'm going through a hard time opposition, I want to withdraw from people, right? That's the time that I want to just kind of get to my own and have my own little pity party and do my thing, right? But those are moments that we need to lean into this idea of community. That's why something like this, why a church is it's so much more than just showing up on a Sunday morning. It's why when, when, when we go through things, right, that there's people that are texting and, and sending that out. It's why small groups are so important where you can get in a group of, of five to ten people who can know your name and know what's going on in your life and to love on you well. God speaks to us through people, right? But, but also, look, <clears throat> look at the end of verse 5. It says that he spoke through the prophets uh, that he sent there. In the name of the God of Israel, who is, what does that say, that last word, over them, right? And so we have to realize, actually, things in my hand, that ultimately God, God is over us, right? Even in the midst of when things seem hard and they seem trying and they feel like we just can't, we can't accomplish anything to realize that we need to look up because God is over us. He's got a plan that he's working. And ultimately, he's still in control. Even as crazy as it may seem like the world is around us and the things we're going through, that God is still over us. He hadn't forgotten about us. He still has a plan. In, uh, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, this is, this is one of the words that God sent to the people. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, here he says it again, Consider your ways, right? Take, take inventory. Think about what you're doing, right? And what does he tell them to do? He says, go up to the land, to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God still has his plan in place. Just because this opposition came in, just because things didn't go the way that the, the Jews thought they would, God still has his plan in place. He's still building his temple, and it's true in our lives too. Even though things may not look the way that we expect them to, God is still got a plan that he's accomplishing. And then finally in, in verse 5, 
I'm sorry, in chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to see that God, God is for you. Right? God is for you. What he says. What he says. Then Zerubbabel, the king of Shealtiel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that was in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Right? These prophets that God gave the message, they were with them, speaking this message that God is for them. God is going to be with them. That God's going to be speaking to them. So they need to get back to the mission that God has called them to get to and to be upon. One of those prophets, a guy named Zechariah, in Zechariah 1, 3 through 6, says this. He says, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Look what he says. He says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Right? That's encouraging. Right? God is telling them through the prophets that, Look, I understand things aren't the way they should be, but if you just come back to me, right, you return to me, I'm going to be with you. Right? And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of moments in my life that I need to, to, to be reminded of this, that God is for me. There's a lot of times that I kind of get in my own headspace and start to think, you know what, God doesn't really, God may not really be for me, right? This may not be for my good or for my best. But I've got to remember that those are those moments that I've pulled myself away. Right? Those are those moments that I've, that I've kind of walked away from what God has called me to do or how he's called me to live. And so this morning the call is to return to God, and he says that he will return to you. Haggai 1, 13, Haggai's message to them as he spoke to the people was this. Uh, Haggai's message from the Lord said, I am with you, declares the Lord. Right? God is with us. And so today as we, as we think about this in our lives, right, we covered a whole lot all the way from opposition to how do we deal with that, how should we deal with that. But now we need to take that and bring it home. Right? Because no matter who we are, where we're sitting at today, what we're going through in life, whether we're uh, you know, we're, whether we're like five or six years old or whether we are, um, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old, we all experience opposition in our life, right? We all experience things in our life, hard times and opposition that comes against us. How are we going to respond to that in our lives, right? And I want us to start thinking like practically in my life, what is that opposition that I'm currently struggling with in my life? What is that opposition that I'm struggling with? And so we're going to take a few minutes and allow you guys just a little bit of time to discuss that with a few people around you. And I would encourage you in this time to be as open as you feel like you can be about sharing if there's an opposition uh, that's, that's happening in your life, that there's a struggle that's happening that you're facing in your life today so that you can be around a group of people who will pray and care for you in that. And then what truth from God's word do we need to start believing? Right? Which one of these things do we need to start believing in that moment? That God's speaking to us so we can find that in his word and his son and creation through God's people, that God is over us, and that God is for us. Which one of those do we need to, to believe today? Do we need to start taking ownership in today? And so I'm going to give you guys a couple of minutes to discuss that, and then we'll wrap. I would encourage you guys to, you know, to continue having those conversations throughout the day. Um, and, and this is just a good time to remind us, too, of like why we, we highlight life groups. Um, this is a time that we can come together and kind of have an extended time to talk about those things. Because obviously... For trying to squeeze all that into an hour and a half on Sunday doesn't really happen. I didn't even do that today without. Um, and so life groups are, are just our way of being able to, to build that community outside of just Sunday morning. Um, and so continue to have those. But as we, as we kind of conclude today, um, we're going to conclude with uh, one more song. And um, it's, it's a song that I love the lyrics to it of Oh Come to the Altar. I think it just ties in so much of what we talked about last week where the altar is just this place of repentance that we can just kind of lay it all down and, and turn from those things in our life. Um, and, and we, and we as, a, as a team kind of acknowledge like the setup, we're so grateful to have this place that we can use on Sunday mornings, but it obviously isn't super conducive for people to come up and try to pray together and stuff like that. So instead of trying to make people try to come up here and, and try to figure out where to go, stuff like that, we've identified we're going to have a couple of people on our prayer team each week that are going to be available to go and to pray with anybody that wants to be prayed with or prayed for. Um, and so they're just going to be able to go back into this back room where you got some space. You don't have to worry about people interrupting you. Um, and so this morning, uh, Sam, Sam, if you just uh, throw your hand up or stand up, there you go. Sam and then Sharon. This is weird calling her Sharon. Uh, this is my mom. Um, but they're going to be our two people on our prayer team this morning. 
Um, and so if, if God has been working on something in your heart this morning, um, whether, it's, whether it's a season of opposition that you've been through, um, whether it's just, you know what, I need to come and I just need to believe that God is actually speaking to me, that he's over me, that he's for me, whatever it may be. If I've just gotten inward and, and you want somebody to pray with you for that, um, they would love to do that for you. I'll be up here um, just worshiping with you guys and singing, but if anybody uh, would like to talk to me or pray, uh, me to pray with them for anything, I'll do that as well. Um, but let's just join our hearts together um, as we come and sing this last song um, of coming to the altar and just the words of how this is a place that we can just come and lay it down. Whatever it is that's, that's happening in our life, let's come and lay it down uh, so that Jesus can start to do the work in our lives that needs to be done.